Amanda E. Machado is a writer, public speaker, and facilitator whose work explores how race, gender, sexuality, and power affect the way we travel and experience the outdoors. She has written and facilitated on topics of social justice and adventure and lived in Cape Town, Havana, Mexico City, Berlin, Rio de Janeiro, and other cities. She has been published in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Guardian, New York Times, NPR, and other publications. She is also the founder of Reclaiming Nature Writing, a multi-week online workshop that expands how we tell stories about nature in a way that considers ancestry, colonization, migration trauma, and other issues. Amanda E. Machado, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about this piece that you wrote that was published in the Sierra Club magazine. Yeah, so this is the last paragraph of a piece I wrote right after the George Floyd protests about why people of color often feel unsafe in the outdoors. So much is written about people of color's intergenerational trauma, the many ways black and brown people have passed down pain. Yet I wanted to believe that the reason some of us made it this far is because we also had inherited intergenerational joy, a staunch determination that runs through our families to enjoy any slice of freedom wherever we can find it, a stubborn capacity for pleasure even under oppressive conditions. I've seen that determination and capacity for joy in practically every space I've been in with people of color. Writer Christiana Cola has even argued that it's what makes people of color stereotypically better at dancing. Our experience of oppression has facilitated our capacity to feel everything intensely, the bad and the good, to have an intimate connection with every visceral experience. Even with all the racial violence associated with outdoor spaces, I want to believe that the outdoors is our best chance at that kind of visceral joy. I want to believe that the moment we had at the waterfall is worth all the anxiety that comes before it. As a traveler and writer, I have built my whole life and work around chasing after those moments. Total presence, total lightness, total safety. But now I wonder if that means I have built my whole life around chasing after something that I may never find, at least not for longer than a few minutes breathing in the mist. It's strange to think that we have to go through these moments of pain to get the intensity of joy. I don't know if I want to fully accept that. I mean, how do you come to terms with it? Yeah, no, I feel the same. I wrote this in a place of a lot of disillusionment in 2020. This was right after the pandemic, right after the protests, like, you know, for George, after George Floyd's murder. The U.S. definitely did not feel like a safe place in a lot of ways for people of color, definitely for me, when I was traveling during that time and camping and being outside. And I think it's still something that I struggle with. I don't want to believe this is true. I want to believe that we can always find our pockets of freedom, even in under whatever conditions of oppression we live in. And I think 2020 definitely taught me that we have to be realistic, you know, about what those conditions are and how extreme they are. And I think that was kind of the wake up call that a lot of other people felt in 2020 of really internalizing just how intense and how deeply these systems have, have affected our lives. And what I like also is that you are an activist, but you know, activism can weigh you down, right? It can fill you with anger. And you've always been going towards the light as well. There's a spiritual aspect of your nature writing, your travels. It's not about getting angry. It's about, you know, journeys and outward journeys and self-growth. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it is about getting angry. Anger has a huge role to play in it. It can be a driving force that can be incredibly healthy when confronting these issues. And I think that I have very much gravitated towards this idea of pleasure activism that Adrian Marie Brown coined. I think that was something that before I knew that word, I was gravitating towards anyways and building my life around. And this idea that you can also create 
the world you want to live in through exploration, through travel, through non-adventures, and by building the world that doesn't exist yet, that you want to exist. That's also a form of activism in some way, right? And also a form of confronting oppression that folks live in. And I think that's what a lot of my travels, without me even knowing when I was 24, I think that's what I was actually trying to do. I think about, you know, just a few years ago, I finally read Cruising Utopia by Jose Esteban Munez, where he talks about queerness in the same way that it like resists this idea to accept what is not enough. And I think traveling for me, that's what it was too. It was looking around, seeing the world that I was living, realizing this is not enough for me. I don't want to accept this. And where can I go to find new ideas and new ways of living and new values and new communities that can teach me something about a different way to live? And so through your various travels within the United States and around the world, you're leaving parts of yourself behind or the way maybe some people try to put you into a box or define you and you're exploring other aspects of yourself. Tell us about those different explorations. Yeah, when I was 24, I decided to take a year off to travel and I sold everything I had and ended a relationship that I was in and I ended up taking a plane trip to Colombia, a one-way ticket. And then I backpacked throughout South America for the next six months. And that's where my father is from in Ecuador. My mom is from Mexico. So a part of that trip also was trying to reconnect to a continent that I didn't really have much knowledge of or experience in, even though it was where my family came from. And, and now looking back, there's like parts of that trip that were just simple adventure and simple like excitement of trying new things, right? Like I hiked, I backpacked for the first time. I was in mountains, 4,000 meters camping for the first time. I sandboarded, you know, I did all kinds of new things that I had never tried before. But I do think now looking back, there was also an ancestral connection to that area that was really important for me and really got me thinking too about my identity as a Latinx person in the US and as a person of color. I think what also was really important about those travels is that it made me realize that that identity is really malleable. That in the US, I'm considered a Latinx person of color. In South America, I was considered a white person, actually, or an American if people heard my accent. But even when I was speaking Spanish, because of my light skin, I had a different classification in Latin America than I did growing up in the States. So I think also seeing how I changed based on where I was traveling to and where I was living within, in some ways that was kind of liberating. It was educational and it was also liberating that, right, that these identities are not fixed and that we need to be cognizant of them and responsible and accountable to the position we live in or the positionality that we have of privilege or not privilege, depending on where we are, but that there is no concrete identity, really, that it moves and changes and shifts with us depending on where we go. So I think that was also something that really helped expand and broaden the way I was thinking about all the things I was, you know, feeling a little bit trapped in when I was in the United States. And you wrote about, and I hadn't heard this expression before, land trauma. So I first heard that term from my friend, Marianne Thomas, a friend of mine who lives in Anchorage, Alaska, and they teach courses on land trauma and what that means to them. And they define it as a, any severed connection we have with land. So this could be because of your ancestors, like in my case, having family members that had to immigrate from one country to another. But it also can mean the severment that we have with land every single day, living in the United States under climate change, where we are seeing, you know, the physical harm being done to land all the time, and living in ways that are not necessarily connected to the land we live in, not really in relationship to the land we are. So I think learning that term, I learned it a few years ago from Matt, really just like was the aha moment of that moment while traveling in South America, when I was on the land of my ancestors and feeling 
I think that term, you know, I was, that's what it was. That was the heaviness. That was the intensity. That was also the healing of that feeling of being reconnected to a piece of land that I had been severed from. And I think during that time too, really realizing even where I live now in Oakland, California, how that is being replicated every day, you know, that I still, even living here in five years, don't necessarily have the deepest relationships with the trees here or the forests or the mountains. And I don't actually know a lot of the history of what's happened on this land and how it's evolved and how it's changed and what my impact has been on it. And I think trying to rebuild those connections has been super, super healing and super important and has also just given me a new framework for how I travel, that it's not, you know, only about doing new things and going on new adventures and hopping from one place to another, but really about how can we visit land in ways that we are actually connecting more to it and not continuing this pattern of being separated from it. It's good because so often there's different ways of traveling. This idea of sometimes the travel is almost a consumerist way or an extractivist way where you're just not having respect and you always are mindful of immersive travel. Yeah, I think that was definitely a pattern that I unknowingly replicated when I first started traveling. I think that's how the travel industry is kind of marketed to us, right? This idea that, you know, bucket lists and wanting to like check boxes of things you're going to do in each place and thing, you know, becomes this thing of like, rather than consuming a product that's an actual physical thing, you're consuming a country or consuming an experience. It's the same framework. We're still grasping at things. We're still compulsively trying to do X, Y, Z without really thinking about its impact, without really thinking about the relationships that we're making in those places, without really thinking about reciprocity. And, you know, a lot of it comes from a deeply colonial mindset also, right? So much of the travel industry was built on the idea of colonialism and which really kind of makes us all inherit this idea that whatever we need in life is going to come from seeking it elsewhere and grabbing it from somewhere else, right? Which I think is the more modern, like now in, in 2020, 2022, I feel like now that's the way that we kind of replicate that colonial travel mindset of my life right now is not great. I'm going to take a vacation. I'm going to take a break and go somewhere else where I can get what I need, right? Which I think is in a lot of ways can describe what I did at 24 as well. I think looking at that really deeply and really thinking about, you know, what is lost from that mindset and the harm that is caused by it has been something I've been trying to do over the last few years. And a lot of that has to do with land trauma, right? Like really acknowledging where our settlement from land comes from and how we can heal that in the ways that we travel. Yes. And thinking back to your parents, you also identify there's traveling from need or traveling from want or desire. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. You know, like in, there was an essay, I'm forgetting who wrote it, who is, you know, questioning why we sometimes call certain people travelers and other people immigrants, certain people expats and certain people immigrants. And that's something that we also really don't um, reflect on in, in the travel industry too, right? When I was living abroad, because I had an American passport, I was seen as an expat. But my parents who came to the U.S. for were considered immigrants. They were never considered expats. So thinking about like the privilege of, of where your passport comes from and how that decides how you're interpreted when you enter a place and what that means for how you're going to engage with the country when you're there is something else I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. And, and really being a true witness or not just there to be seeing things, checking things off, but you're being observed and you're contributing, being seen as American and you've not having this concept when you were at home, there was always this other element of your self-image. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of writers of color have talked about this. I'm forgetting the quote, but James Baldwin had a similar experience when he went to France. You know, that was the most American he had ever felt. And I think this is the case for a lot of people who have a marginalized identity in the United States that becomes kind of their whole experience, which is what growing up in a really conservative town in the United States felt like to me. It it felt like my whole identity had to be where my parents came from and being a person of color was the only way I was seen as, you know, it was a very one-dimensional way of being interpreted by the world here. And so then by traveling and seeing the other ways that that can change depending on your context, yeah, made a huge difference. And at the same time, the flip coming from being a marginalized person in the United States as a Latinx person to suddenly being one of the most privileged people while traveling as an American person with an American passport and American dollars, you know, like that kind of realizing huge impact of that privilege also made me rethink the ways in which I look at my identity and the ways in which I think about how I should be, again, engaging as a traveler with the rest of the world. Yes. And then you've also written about forging your queer Latinx identity and that there weren't maybe at that time many examples, say, in the media or in the wider culture where you could point to there are others in this space. It was something that was more visible, say, in the white American culture, but it was was very small in terms of the number of representations. Yeah. So after coming out, I went to Mexico, which is where my mother's from. And spend most of my time there interacting in queer communities and in queer spaces. And it just made such a huge difference. It was, again, such a flip from what I had seen in the U.S., where so much of queer media and queer representation is mostly white, right? And creates this idea that the queer community automatically means the white community. And thankfully, that's shifted a lot. I think shows like Vida that came out recently and Hentified and just a ton of other movies that are coming out lately and books by Latinx queer writers are really shifting that. Thankfully, I think this generation coming up now will have so much more representation to get. But for me, I think, yeah, I think what was most healing and most necessary at that time was to go back to Mexico and to see for myself what queerness looked like under a Mexican context, how it was different than what I had seen in the States, how it might more feel like home. And yeah, and also really unpacking the history behind queerness and Latinx cultures, how it had always been there, right? This idea that it was invented recently or something that just came out of nowhere is completely false. And like really understanding the way indigenous communities in Mexico had interpreted queerness, had words for queerness. There was a word that I learned, patlache, which is a word, a Nahua word that meant women that were in love with other women and had been used for a really long time. So learning that history of transgender communities in Oaxaca that, that were called mushes. Yeah, just knowing that there was always terminology for this, there was always, these ideas always existed. You know, we always knew about this. Just a lot of that has been erased, hidden, or with Catholicism and with other influences of colonization, a lot of that has just been hidden away, you know, from the narrative of what queerness is in Mexico or in the United States as well. So yeah, learning those stories, being in those spaces definitely was like a really healing way. And yet another way that travel becomes this thing that always allows me to expand how I think of myself, right? And how I think of myself in relation to other people. Yeah, that trip was a, was a great example. You, you describe it beautifully and we can follow in your footsteps and kind of feel that liberation of the sense of coming home, coming out, coming home. You know, it's many different things. I wonder if maybe the stories were there, as you say, hidden. I wonder if something about the immigrant or refugee experience is one that oh, people just hid if they were queer or LGBTQ because, oh my gosh, you're already marginalized. And it tends towards conservatism because you just like, this is not another thing that you can 
put out there. Sure, there's some impulse in that. I think, unfortunately, that's just how queerness has been portrayed, which is not wrong. You know, there is oppression in that identity. I think what's sad about that to me is that it misses out on all the ways in which queerness is also liberating for everybody and has been really liberating for me. And all the ways that it's, it actually can create so much more joy and happiness and healing through claiming that identity. It's just unfortunate that in the system we live in, what's seen, what, what we have to take most into account is the oppression and the marginalization of it and the very real impact that has on people and has that on me and has that on every queer person I know. Yeah, it's always sad to me, though, that that erases also the idea that it can bring so much, so much joy. Exactly. Now you live in the Bay Area, so statistically you can feel a little bit more liberated there. But it's sad that people then have to move to places where they have, in a sense, a new family, but leave behind their families because it's just not as accepted. And you grew up in Tampa, Florida. Yeah, I grew up in a part of the town that was really conservative and mostly white. So I grew up not knowing many people of color, definitely not knowing any queer people. And then, you know, tried my best to find a way to go somewhere else where there could be more diversity and more people that kind of affirmed my identity. And that's when I left for college to go to college in Rhode Island. And then I moved to California. And then after that, started traveling. So in some ways, I see my upbringing in Florida. I don't know. It changes every year how I see it. But I think a lot of the stuck feeling that I felt there definitely influenced the desire to want to travel and see new things and find new ways of being that I don't think I felt like I could gain access to at that specific time in Florida. And you're a writer. You also run a number of workshops. So I do workshops on what in the industry called diversity, equity, and inclusion, although I have a lot of issues about those terms. But essentially, I do workshops that create spaces where folks can talk about issues of white supremacy and basically any oppression, homophobia, gender roles, things that we now call diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I like to think of as issues that are actually affecting us so much deeper than that. I think a lot of times when people uh, seek me out to, to book one of those workshops, it's because they think that they want to help their company become more diverse or help their company become more inclusive. And I guess what I'm realizing is that the issue with that framework is that it actually makes us only think about how we're helping others and not really thinking about the impact that these issues are actually having on ourselves. And what I have noticed in these workshops is that the people who do the deepest work on this and actually create the biggest changes and make the best impact are people that are wanting to learn about oppression and white supremacy and all these systems, not just to help others and not just to make their company more diverse or more inclusive, but also because they are realizing that these systems are also making them feel less free, even at the same time that they might be quote benefiting from it, right? So like they might have a privilege by having this identity. And at the same time, they are noticing that even with that privilege, something about this system still does not feel good and does not feel right. That dismantling that system would not only help the people who are not benefiting from it, but would also help themselves and would also free themselves. So those are the ways that I try to frame the workshops. I try to teach people about how these systems work and how imbalanced power systems affect not only the people with the least amount of power, but also the people with the most amount of power, and how everybody is suffering under that system, and how dismantling the system, changing the system, finding a different way to live without those imbalances in power ultimately makes everybody feel free. So I work mostly with nonprofits and organizations that are seeking that kind of work, 
I've also started now working with Latinx organizations specifically on how a lot of those systems affect Latinx people in their specific context, which has been really important as well. Yeah. And then ultimately just trying to find ways that we can take this new desire that's, I think, really sparked after 2020 to really have deep conversations about these issues, but to make sure that we're having them in a really real way and to make sure that we are saying the thing that needs to be said so and doing things that needs to be done in order to make a real impact and not have it feel performative as it could. And as, it, as we saw that it kind of did after 2020 for a lot of different organizations. No, I agree. Those terms, we use it for the sake of brevity, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it does feel like statistics. It feels like counting things off. And then that's almost like people are numbers and people are people. There's people behind the pixels. So going into the deep structural change that can take years, it's hard. I imagine with the workshop, you're changing mindsets and then slowly it's having a reverberating effect. What are some things that you're learning and what do you hope to achieve after a workshop? Are they revisited after a certain amount of time because it doesn't happen overnight? Yeah, I think the goal of all these workshops is to really get people invested in doing that personal work outside of the workshop because, yeah, it definitely doesn't happen overnight. So to really get folks to think about how much energy and work they are willing to put in, because it is a lot of energy and work, to dismantling these systems within themselves, within their relationships with other people, within the relationships with others in their company. And ultimately where they always land is that uh, we all have to give something up if we are the person in privilege. And that that's actually the hardest part. And that usually is where everybody actually gets stuck is when we realize that we know we understand the system, we understand how it works, but we also start to realize that in order to change it, we have to give up some of the power that we have. We can't hold on to all the power that we have and still change the system at the same time. It's a can't have your cake and eat it too kind of problem for those with privilege, right? So I think that's usually where our workshops end is really having folks reflect on what is the power that they're willing to give up and how are ways that you can share that power or give it to others in small ways and in big ways so that the system can start to change. I had a conversation recently and it was on the point of there's different diversities, right? As well, there's also people who say have autism or Asperger's. They're not always counted or they don't have to disclose or it's illegal in some countries to disclose, like whether you're queer or you're not supposed to ask. So there's so many filters and it can be a confusing space. And then this interview opened my mind because it was about diversity of different aptitudes of personality types of whether, you know, sometimes if you're talking about diversity around a boardroom, whether, you know, often it's the most outspoken or charismatic who get their ideas and take up all the oxygen. But then sometimes the quietest person will have the some of the really good ideas, but they won't have a space at the table. Yeah. And I think that's what I try to focus on as well in, in these workshops, in my writing. And I think that's also what like travel has helped with, right? Like to understand that it's just because experience the world in a certain way, either through power or privilege in the U.S. does not mean that we'll experience the world the same way if we were in France or in Mexico or in a different context, in a different place. And again, that malleability, right? That malleability of our identity and the amount of power we hold and, and don't is something I really picked up on from traveling and something that I think really helps when thinking about these systems overall, right? Like you said, there's so, at the same time, I'm holding a hundred different forms of power and a hundred different forms of privilege, right? And all of that can change depending on which context and environment I'm in. And I think getting people to really understand that and really notice how that happens because it's very fast and very subtle at times. It's a really great skill for then learning how you can then help, right? How you can then give up power when you need to give up power and take up space when you need to take up space and 
give the floor when you need to give the floor. So like all the different ways that can change in one day, (laughs) depending on the different spaces you're inhabiting. Yes. And I can speak as someone who's usually lived in the countries where I've been a very small minority. One percent of the population might look like me. And so I didn't even expect that space. And yet at the same time that I'm also born in America, although I live mostly in Europe now, this idea that a country that is five percent of the world's population and yet imposes a lot of its belief systems on the rest of the world. And I think now there's a little bit of a reckoning that, you know, the power of the BRIC countries or others are really it's a disproportionate amount of power that's within the U.S. and NATO. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I still do workshops on oppression generally, but at this point I've been focusing mostly on a workshop that's called Reclaiming Nature Writing, which has been a workshop that takes the idea of nature writing, which at least in the U.S. has always been seen as a predominantly white male field, and looks at writers that have existed for hundreds of years that have always been writing about nature, but have maybe not been considered nature writers by the field generally. So we look at writers like Audre Lorde, who wrote about nature all the time, but is not usually seen as a nature writer and many others like that, because it addresses, like we've talked about earlier, ideas of land trauma and severment from nature. And what are the historical causes for that? And what are the systems of oppression that have led certain people to be disconnected from nature in certain ways? And how can we heal that with new stories and telling new stories about the outdoors and about travel and about nature in general? As a woman of color, specifically a black woman, I do not feel comfortable in a lot of spaces or accepted. Surely space of nature and what they call foreign spaces like traveling outside of the country. And listening to Machado talk about the idea of people of color not feeling comfortable in spaces is very relatable. Before I travel or before I think of going anywhere, I have to look at the reviews from black people, black women specifically, they love black women travelers, hikers, and nature walkers I follow because I feel like they are the ones who understand me better because there are a lot of spaces that just aren't accepting of people like me and people of color in general. And then looking back at the colonial past, having this discussion about my childhood, opening this space is really fascinating. Her work is very fascinating. And listening to her talk about not only how people of color are not accepted in certain spaces and how people of color are actually taking the reins and implanting themselves in those spaces. It's really amazing and very relatable on my part. There's a line that you cite from Robin Wall Kimmerer. Do you think that the earth loves you back? It's a powerful question. Yeah, she's someone that I definitely had to the curriculum. We read a lot of her stuff. She was a huge teacher of mine in thinking about how I reconnect to land as a person who's traveled a lot and loves to camp and hike all the time. And she asked this question in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, when she talks about teaching at a graduate's class and everybody could very easily share how much they loved nature, but could not answer the question that she asked afterwards, which is, do you think the earth loves you back? And she was trying to direct her students at that moment to think about how if we have such a love for nature and a love for land, we also have to really feel and understand unconditional love that we can receive from nature back if we're listening and if we're feeling connected in that way. And then it becomes a relationship of reciprocity. And that that's actually what's going to heal climate change and heal all the issues that we're struggling with now is by seeing our relationship to earth as reciprocal and something that, you know, feeds off of each other together. 
Yes. And I think of it in another way, I think that nature has been loving us so much, but it's been unrequited for so long. It's been loving, loving, loving. It's like this one who keeps on forgiving and keeps on giving everything that we depend on. And it's just, we have to learn to love nature back. And I know that you do. That's evident in your writing. Nature is circular by design, and we just have to remember that we are part of that circle. Absolutely. Yeah, unrequited love sounds like a great <laughs> description of what it's been like for these last few years. Yeah, I find that the more I read about these kinds of connections to nature and the more I become mindful of my own experiences when I'm outside, it really does feel like the earth has a lot to say <laughs> and has been trying to say it for a really long time and is quite frustrated at the moment that we have not been listening. <laughs> it was okay at some point when we had a smaller population, we're now 8 billion, and we're using up every year. I think the Earth Overshoot Day this year was July 28th. So we have to, of course, live more within our balance. And as you're traveling, you know, sometimes traveling in countries where you know the language, whether it's Spanish or English, but also you're without language, which is also, I feel, a beauty of traveling. You don't you're having that common language, you're just seeing. So I think it's fascinating writing about nature, but then sometimes not speaking about it, having that moment of silence where it's just that other kind of communication. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of the messages end up coming from is when we're not talking <laughs> and from silence, which I think is countercultural to the world now, which has a lot of noise. Exactly. Because I don't know the longest period that you've gone when you're traveling and it's so immersive when you've had that kind of silent observing connection and what that was like. But we understand things about ourselves and the world also without language. Yeah. I mean, I think the times that I've been on meditation retreats where they don't allow us to speak, I've done that a handful of times. And it's always like around day five or six, like one of the last few days that I just haven't heard my voice in more than 72 hours that, yeah, a lot more comes through. And I think there's lots of ways to listen. And I don't think everyone has the privilege to spend five days without talking or necessarily needs to do that. But those experiences for me have at least been really powerful in the sense of what you're explaining. Like, I think there is like a different kind of listening that happens when you allow yourself that much silence. Yes. I always wondered what it'd be like to be able to have the luxury to isolate the different senses, to go days without speaking or days without even seeing and wonder what the richness of the other senses, how they would come alive in the absence of others. Yeah, I think that definitely could happen. I think five-day meditation retreats will offer that a little bit. You've been able to observe a lot of different indigenous practices. I'm all over the world and from your own family. What were some of those indigenous connections with the land and rituals that you observed or have taken part in? Well, I mean, my family are mixed indigenous and Spanish ancestry. The Indigenous part is pretty much erased in terms of documentation and in terms of culture. So I was not raised under any Indigenous beliefs. I was raised very Catholic and with very assimilated Spanish, uh, like cultural beliefs, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. So a lot of my work lately has been trying to unlearn that part and uncover the parts that have been hidden. But that is tricky in terms of not wanting to culturally appropriate anything or enter into spaces that are not mine or never or not spaces that I was raised in. So I think I've mostly, you know, been using work like Robin Kimmer and other indigenous writers who are writing and willing to share their knowledge about this to learn from. And while traveling, I think, you know, trying to be as respectful as I can and not 
enter spaces I'm not invited into, but witnessing, you know, the ways that indigeneity plays different roles in different countries, you know, like in the country where my dad's from, Ecuador, the indigenous population is really high. It's much higher than in other places. And it's much more present, like in the mountains and where he's from, you see people still dressed in traditional dress, still practicing a lot of indigenous practices out in the open. And they've also been intermixed with so many other cultural parts of Ecuador in lots of different ways. So Ecuador has a really specific history that I admittedly don't know very much about, and I'm starting to, only in the last five years or so, really unpack and learn more of. Well, they have what I think is so beautiful. They have the earth law in Ecuador, which I think we should all have the earth that should be written right into the constitution. We know some people are trying to amend the constitution with the Green Amendment there in the U.S., but I think we should have that all around the world. And I think it's unfortunate sometimes that a lot of the indigenous knowledge, it can get lost because there was an oral tradition and with indigenous languages or dying out, that knowledge is sometimes not passed from generation to generation. Yeah. And, you know, the incredible impact of colonization, which was hugely violent and made it impossible for, you know, even with people that wanted to share, people that wanted to learn to write it down, like that was just not allowed. And Every year I uncover more and more of that history of how it specifically played out in Ecuador and in Mexico and in the United States. And every year it's just more and more devastating. (laughs) I think a big part of our work now needs to be really learning those details and really feeling them. Because the more we learn how much colonization still has affected the way things are to this day, the social dynamics, the power dynamics, who has land, who doesn't, who has access to land, who doesn't, the cultural practices of people in Ecuador, everything can be traced back to the impact of that system and how violent it was. I am writing more about it. I wrote mostly about the Mexican side for Guernica in an essay about the ancestry research I uncovered on that side. I'm only currently now in the last year really researching the Ecuadorian side, which has been much harder to trace here from the U.S., but that's much harder to to find records and documentation. And I'm starting to uncover some things, but it's still very much in the works. They always say, if you're writing, then it's not covered in the archives, then there's a space for you. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. And with Ecuador, yeah, there's been, I mean, a lot of it's very similar to Mexico and a lot of it is is unique. And I think learning about the Hacienda system there, which was the way that the Spanish gave out land to colonizers and those people then employed or enslaved laborers to work the land for them so that they could reap the profit. So almost all the way the land was distributed has everything to do with indigeneity and blackness and colonization. So just thinking about my ancestors, those people who owned some of those properties and associated with land is a really tragic history. Yes, we have to do a lot of rethinking about how we engage with land and how we can bring back regenerative cultural practices. But it'll be a necessity for all of us where we see a lot more climate migration, even within the United States, climate migrants, not too, but within. You've taught with Teach for America beyond your workshops. I guess you're always teaching through your writing. What are your reflections on how we can and improve our education models to educate for something that I think is very important for you, the emotional EQ and, and the IQ. Well, I think when I was a teacher, one of the things that was just really hard for me to understand was seeing how so much of the urgency around, I was teaching with predominantly low-income kids of color here in the Bay Area, and there was a lot of urgency about catching them up to where people saw white students were at in terms of the achievement gap, which is an important goal. But I think what was hard at the time was also seeing and knowing from my upbringing in Florida around mostly wealthy white kids, 
how a lot of their childhood and education was not only about achievement and about grades, but also about this privilege to explore and to adventure and to get lost and make mistakes and fail and still be able to have a meaningful career and do well in school. And they had this holistic childhood where they could do all of those things at the same time. It was frustrating to me that the students of color that I was working with did not have that privilege of getting lost or adventuring or exploring because we had to focus only on their achievement and only on getting them into college as quickly as possible without allowing them the same spaciousness to enjoy these other things. So that was something that I continue to think about it. We can educate kids, not just so that they can succeed in the system as it currently is, but also with that same spaciousness so that they can experience all the things that privileged students are able to experience. I continue to wonder about how we can make education more about that and not only about preparing kids for a really difficult system, right? And to be a part of that difficult system. Right. It is so important. And I think in many ways, universities don't educate for the whole person. We often have to looking into the future because educate ourselves. We think about the climate crisis. We have to have this adaptive intelligence. I think that that is one thing that isn't focused, whether if you're from privileged background or it's not something that we're training people enough in. Yeah. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving, the next generation, what are some of your memories of the beauty and wonder of the natural world? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think it's a lot of the work that we've been chatting about that I am growing towards now, really unpacking our disconnection from land and where that started and how that happened and what we can do to heal that, really starting to take accountability for our own role in that ourselves. And in many ways, our powers and privileges and all of that affects the way that we're engaging with the world and traveling in it and exploring on it and connecting with it. With with the urgency of climate change, I truly do not know what else we can do or how we can fix it without first deeply transforming our relationship to how we see the earth and the ways that we use it, you know, only to our benefit without building that kind of relationship. And so to me, that relationship, it might not seem like the most concrete way to solve climate change, but I feel like it's just the crucial foundational first step that if we don't start to see our relationship with the natural world as a connection of reciprocity that has to go both ways, then nothing else that we do to solve that problem will matter or will work. And I think the solutions we're seeing so far are the Band-Aid solutions, but not really getting to the core issue that is causing the problem. So for me, as someone who's loved traveling and loved being in nature and loved exploring new places, I think it needs to happen now with a new reflection on how we're engaging with that land once we're on it. I don't know exactly what answers will come from that, but I definitely know that's the first step. Well, thank you, Amanda E. Machado, for sharing your journey with us, for helping us find beauty and connection and your writing that bears witness and inspires us to make the world a better place for future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Naomi Zidon. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. 
Thank you for listening.